Hello and welcome to Innovation, Change, and Leadership from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series. In our second episode, Daniel Marquez, executive at Accenture Strategy, explores why innovation is an essential attribute of successful not-for-profit organizations. Here's Daniel's presentation. So let me tell you a little bit about who I am. I am uh, someone who has, has one foot in, in two different worlds, and I think that's why I have a, a unique perspective to share with you all this morning. So as was mentioned, uh, I'm a leader in Accenture's strategy practice. For anyone who doesn't know, Accenture is a large uh, professional services organization. I focus specifically on providing digital technology and uh, business strategy services to large companies in Canada. As part of that work, a lot of what I do is focus on helping organizations understand what does it take to drive a faster pace of change? How do they embrace innovation? How do they take advantage of the latest and greatest of what technology has to offer? And how do they ultimately do that in a way that's sustainable and consistent? Now, UCG is an organization that I've been involved in and ultimately am the CEO of at this point. It's an organization founded on the idea that we can help the non-for-profit sector uh, improve itself and accelerate its own pace of change through giving it access to the kind of advisory services that a lot of for-profit organizations have access to and that often non-for-profits don't get to take advantage of. We do this through a combination of bringing in industry professionals like myself, pairing them up with the, the raw intellectual horsepower of students from some of the, the premier campuses in the country, uh, and then engaging them with clients like yourself to actually go out and solve some of these bigger, more complex strategic problems that you often just don't have the time or the capacity to spend the right amount of effort on solving. So I think having a foot in both of these worlds, it makes me well positioned to understand what does it mean to innovate in the not-for-profit sector? And why is it often so hard to bridge that gap? My perspective is that innovation isn't actually that different between large for-profit well, for organizations uh, and, and the non-for-profit sector. In fact, I think innovation is universal in terms of what it really takes to get it right. And that's why so many people struggle with it, not because of their resources, not because of what kind of organization they are, but because of what it takes to actually get this right and do it consistently. So in my perspective, doing innovation right, it starts with identity. See, a lot of organizations, they think about innovating, they think about it as a thing that they have or a thing that they do, but innovation is really more about who you are as an organization. If your organization was an individual, what would its personality be? Would it value change? Would it fear the future? Those are the kinds of questions you have to be able to answer if you want to figure out whether you're capable and ready of being a more innovative organization. The way that I see a lot of people approach the appetite to become more innovative is, as I mentioned, this, uh, this asset view. Right? They, they start to tack innovation onto the side of what they do. They have what they do today plus innovation. It doesn't work. Uh, usually I'll see the word cool thrown around when people start to try to innovate. Right? They'll say, oh, yeah, we're doing what we do but we've also got this cool thing over here. It's, uh, you know, once in a while it produces something shiny and interesting, and at the end of the day, when the resources get tight, people throw that thing away because 
it's not really part of what you do, and no one values it enough to invest in it and focus on its success. So if you want to innovate, it has to be part of who you are. It has to be part of your identity. Now, when I mention that cool concept, usually I, I tell people, whenever I hear they're innovating and they say the word cool in the same breath, I tell them that they're screwed. <laughs> There's no chance. It's over, give up, or start again. Now, I'm going to give you an example of what I think you actually need to do in the context of something very different, but hopefully it'll help you understand what I'm trying to say. So, on the left, this is, this is cool. I know it doesn't seem cool, but at the time, right, the idea that you could have a mobile phone, that's cool. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly pervasive. It wasn't in use a lot, but it was cool. If you had one, that was pretty cool. Then, the technology started to become compelling. People started to really get that this was important. They saw use cases for it that were valuable. They started to get excited about it. But it wasn't part of what we just did all the time yet. It was still something of a novelty, but it was increasingly relevant for specific pieces of what we wanted to do with our, with our lives and with our organizations. And then you get to where we are today, and the ubiquity of mobile technology has made it core to what it is to be a person. The expectation that you have this device on you at all times is now a baseline that most organizations bank on. Not having your phone, you know, certainly for myself, if I, if I go out the door one day, get to work and realize I left my phone at home, I feel deeply uncomfortable. I don't know if that's true. Anyone else, yeah, feel, feel the itch? Get a little nervous when they realize that they're, they're without their device? If you don't, congratulations you are much better off. But, but that's core to how we live today, right? That's become just a part of who we are. And the same is true of innovation. A lot of organizations, a lot of people will start by thinking about it as something cool, something that we add into our lives, mostly for novelty. Then they'll start to realize that it can really be powerful, and people will start to catch on. It'll build momentum, and eventually, it will become a core part of what we do. That's our goal, innovation at the core. Accomplishing that starts with leadership, which is why I think it's great. We've got all of you here today talking about that. On the one hand, you have your evangelist. You have someone who is banging the table, saying we must innovate and driving this and making it a priority of the organization. On the other side, you have the operator. You have the, the practical-minded one that's figuring out how to take those innovative ideas and how to turn them into innovative realities. In my perspective, what I've seen, the best version of this is that your, your CEO or executive director or president, whatever the title, the ultimate, you know, the buck stops here person, they're the ones wearing that chief innovator, chief evangelist hat. It's the single best way to make sure that innovation is at the core of what you do is to literally put it at the core of how you make decisions. But it's not the only way. A lot of organizations have leaders that are operators. They are execution-focused, execution-minded people, and that's okay. But it becomes trickier to make sure that you still give enough power and enough time to that other side. So big successful examples of that, you'll see someone with a chief evangelist kind of role that the CEO trusts implicitly and that has enough power and enough authority to be in a position to actually drive that without seeing it stop every time it gets too interesting. 
So I'll give you a few examples. I think one of the single best examples of this partnership at peak performance is Tim Cook and Steve Jobs at the height of Apple's prominence, right in the midst of the, the release and the evolution of the iPhone and the iPad. Right, so Steve Jobs, well known as a, a tech visionary, an extremely no-nonsense, intense personality, driving exactness and driving his vision forward. But what a lot of people don't realize is the real reason why they were able to succeed and become so big and so powerful was because of the efforts of Tim Cook in taking all of that and saying, okay, how are we gonna make this viable? Right? He's the reason why they built massive, hyper-efficient supply chain networks across the world. He's the reason why they were, be able, they were able to be so profitable on the base of that innovation. Now, this is a, the example isn't intended to show off how do you become super profitable. It's intended to show off what this partnership, what this pairing was able to accomplish. And what you need to have inside your own leadership to be able to drive innovation at the core of what you do. Okay. Now I want to give you a counterexample. Uh, is anyone familiar with Firefest? Okay. Show of hands, familiarity, you've heard it before. Okay, so it doesn't matter if you have, it's okay, just, just interested. So Firefest, there's a, a few documentaries that have been going around about this recently. There was a bunch of this in the news a couple of years ago when the event occurred. Firefest was a very well-publicized catastrophe of an, of, a, of, a, of an event. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that it didn't seem to start that way. Right? At the beginning, it was this highly curated, very savvy digital media campaign to launch this super exclusive, really fancy music festival on Pablo Escobar's private island, uh, and, and tickets were $3,000 to $250,000 each. And they sold out in a few days, right? Because they, they pushed a vision in a really, really fantastic way. The problem is that the vision was good, but the ability to execute it was not so good. You skip forward a few months, and within about a month of when the event was supposed to go live, you had major things like housing, concert venues weren't built yet. Things like food and logistics hadn't been figured out or taken care of yet. So the warning signs were there to realize that maybe this thing was gonna go off the rails, but no one was in a position to act on those warning signs. Or some people did see them, but they weren't in a position of power enough to be able to do anything about what was going on. The ultimate result was this. It was a massive, extremely well-publicized disaster of an event with thousands of concert goers arriving with no accommodations, nowhere to stay, no food, no water, trapped on an island that they didn't know how to leave. It wasn't good, is what I'm saying. It went badly. Now, the reason that all of this happened, and the reason why, in retrospect, it seems so easy to, to tell that it was going to go sideways was this guy. This is the visionary leader of Firefest, Billy McFarland, who, at the time, when all of this was just beginning, he was lauded as one of the potential future visionaries of the startup space, a tech uh, guru that everyone was saying, 
could, could not be stopped, had an amazing vision, and, and was a runaway freight train of ideas. And that was true. The problem was that there was no one there that he trusted that was there to counterbalance that and turn those great ideas into an actual executed reality. And now that guy is in jail. What is innovation and why does it matter? I think it's important that we all understand what we're really talking about here, just because innovation as a concept is so muddied with a lot of buzzwords and, and people talking about it and implying that it means a thousand different things. Innovation is not the only way that your organization can do good and create value for the people that you care about. Innovation is about finding novel and insightful ways to take advantage of the situation that you have to do something that you weren't previously capable of doing. Usually this takes three different forms. The first one is repurposing. This is about thinking through the resources and the assets that we have at our disposal and figuring out how we can reapply those in new and novel ways to create more value than we were able to before. Right? This takes a certain degree of creativity. It takes the willingness to break things and put them back together. It takes the willingness to change. I'll give you an example. Domino's Pizza, uh, a few years ago, was in a pretty tough spot. They were at the bottom of the literal and figurative food chain uh, in the pizza industry. Everyone thought that they were likely to go bankrupt in the not-too-distant future, <clears throat> and they'd really dropped off the radar of companies you might want to work for. So a new CEO came in, and he made a bold decision. He said, from now on, Domino's Pizza is a tech company that happens to sell pizza. It's a big decision, right? One that at the time, a lot of people just didn't really even understand. But it was a decision about the identity of that organization, putting the concept of innovation in this context, the principles and practices that startups and digital native organizations uh, used to drive their success. He wanted to put that at the core of a traditional company and use it to create results. And the results have been there. In the time since this has occurred, Domino's has pulled its way back up to the top of the heap in terms of the pizza industry. They started with mobile and web ordering, making it easier for people to order and not have to get, pick up the phone. They made it easier to understand their customers, capture information about them, and use it to improve the quality of the services so that you weren't a stranger every single time you wanted a pizza. They added real-time tracking of your order because the worst part of ordering a pizza is the part between when you told someone you wanted pizza and when you don't yet have any pizza. Right? The, the goal of the pizza is for it to be in your face. And the, the real-time tracking gave them the ability to tell you, okay, we get it. We're making it right now. Right now, we're putting on some toppings. Right now. Putting it in, in the oven? Right now. It's in a box. Right now. It's in a car, and you can see where that car is right now. So don't worry. The pizza's coming to your face. It's okay. And more, most recently, Domino's Hotspots. Domino's realized that they wanted to deliver a pizza experience to people, not just a pizza product. And the thing is that the appetite for a pizza doesn't always happen at your traditional address. It doesn't necessarily happen at your home. Sometimes you want pizza at the beach, so have some pizza at the beach. Sometimes you want to order pizza for your kid's soccer team at the field. 
So get some pizza at the field. Domino's wants to deliver you a pizza experience to where you are, not to where your address says you need to be. So repurposing, they didn't really change a whole lot. They still sell pizza, they still have ovens, but they changed how they use those resources to become extremely effective. Second one is what I call transplanting. It's taking something interesting and effective from one environment, whether it's another industry, another sector, another geography, and putting it into a new space in which it becomes novel and very powerful. I'll give you another example. Uh, this is a story that I heard a few years ago about work that Pepsi was doing, Pepsi owns Gatorade, to try to improve the sales of Gatorade. So they had the smart idea to use analytics and realize that every time that the weather changes and that there's a sports event and that they coincide, Gatorade sales skyrocket. And so they used this insight to figure out that if they make sure they have Gatorade stocked, every time that that happens, they sell a lot of Gatorade. Simple, useful idea, insightful, right? But what was really interesting was talking to agricultural companies that took that same analytics of weather patterns and specific kinds of events, overlaid it on their own industry, and realized that it could save them enormous amounts of money and improve yield by helping them understand how weather patterns were going to affect specific crops. An innovation used to sell sports drink, when cross-applied, had an enormous effect on an industry that had never thought to approach this problem like this. And that's why I think it's really interesting to have people like myself in these conversations, because there's an opportunity to bridge the gap and find insights from the for-profit sector from different regions, different geographies, that when cross-applied can have a huge impact that you wouldn't have necessarily seen because it was just hiding just out of sight. Third kind is what people usually refer to when they talk about disruption or reimagining, and it's recognizing the necessity of, of changing the game. Maybe you've, you've maxed out on the impact that you can have the way that your organization and the environment in which it operates is structured. And the only way to create you know, 10 times the impact is to change the way that that environment and that system actually functions. I think some of the most prominent examples of this, of course, are Uber, Airbnb, for example. And they asked interesting questions about the environment in which they wanted to operate that when you really thought about them, and when they became the identity of these organizations, drove massive innovation, right? Uber asked, what if transportation was a service I could interact with as easily as I interact with Facebook? Airbnb asked, what if I ran a hotel company that didn't own any hotels, right? They sound a little bit ludicrous in, like, in, in, the, in the moment, but the result has been very significant. Now this one's tough because it requires you to be able to step back from the environment and the realities of your day-to-day your -day operations, to be able to rethink some of the, the, um, the sacred cows of today's environment. All of this comes down to two factors that drive people towards innovating. It's the same things that drive people towards any kind of change. Opportunity, or urgency. 
And that's going to take lots of form. I'm sure that if you, if you all reflect on your own organizations, you can think of a thousand things that fall into each of these categories. Maybe it's new technologies that are opening up new channels by which you can engage the people that matter to you. Maybe it's government changing its mandates, changing its services, and applying new pressure by deferring some of its responsibility to the sector. Maybe it's uh, the, the challenges that you face being side by side with other comparable organizations that provide similar services to yours and fighting for limited resources to be able to do what you do. Or maybe it's just that the hardships and the challenges that the audiences you're trying to support face are still there. Even though you are doing everything that you can and you're making an impact, you're not making enough impact or you're not making the impact necessary to really fundamentally change the problem. All of these motivate us to innovate, and they all motivate us not just to innovate by trying to incrementally tweak something, but by changing who we are and putting innovation at the core of what kind of organization we want to be. So I've talked a lot. Most of my examples have been out of the for-profit sector, corporations innovating by throwing money at a problem. I want to talk about some of the innovations that I'm seeing in the non-for-profit sector. First off, a lot of this is being driven by an evolution in the audience that you serve and that you engage. Mostly driven by the evolving appetites of millennials and, and Gen Zers, which is the people after the millennials. So if you only refer to the millennials, you're already too late. These people are more digitally savvy and engaged than ever. They are more particular and discerning about where they spend their time and who they support. And they're also less engaged on an average basis in the not-for-profit sector than generations before them. So what does this do? How is this driving change? Well, at the highest level, what I'm seeing, again, across both the for-profit and non-profit non sector, is I'm seeing a bit of a convergence between those two industries in order to better serve and better engage this audience. On the for-profit side, I see organizations moving increasingly away from your standard campaigns of giving towards taking bold and potentially contentious stances in the marketplace about what they stand for and what they believe. They are taking positions on their identity, and in doing so, they are actually moving into some of the spaces and some of the services traditionally thought to be the, the realm of the nonprofit. Patagonia is a great example of an organization that does just that. Beyond uh, allocating 1% of their net revenues towards the social impact programs that they have, they also think about it in the context of their own products. They introduced a new product specifically so they could drive a more sustainable kind of grain into greater use across the world. They invest in programs and bake those programs back into their services to focus on those environmental priorities that are core to who they are as an organization, not just because it will give them visibility. They've also launched programs like the Patagonia Action Works, which are specifically focused at engagement, at helping provide a platform by which people in communities can think about environmental impact in their communities and collaborate on, on achieving those goals and it's paired that with grant funding that can help those people go and make an outsized impact. Now, on the non-profit side, 
you see a shift in the other direction. You see a shift towards an increasing level of engagement with the concept of the social enterprise. So we is a great example of that. Right? They've, they've shifted in a significant way towards a, a engaging through commercial channels to power other parts of what they do, but also to create direct modes of engagement with the millennials and the Gen Z audiences that they're trying to engage. They make it easy to walk into one of their stores and use digital technologies to understand the impact that they're having, to see what that impact actually looks like in the field, and to engage with the industry on a broader basis. Right? And you can tell from some of the, the things that their leadership are saying how important it is to them to be able to provide this level of engagement to these audiences that are shaping how people engage with the non-for-profit sector now. Another good example is the Girl Scouts. So this uh, is an example. This is Olivia. And she is the highest selling person selling Girl Scout cookies in the New York area. She did this by taking advantage of a digital platform that the Girl Scouts developed in partnership with, I think it was Dell Computer and Visa, uh, to make it a lot easier for people like Olivia to deliver their message, to send video content, helping people understand the experiences that she gets to have thanks to the Girl Scouts program, make it easier to understand where the money from her cookie sales are going and the impact that they're going to have, and make it much easier for her to go from selling in the community to selling across the country so that she can make sure that her grandparents and her grandparents' friends in Florida can buy her New York cookies. As a result, before and after this digital platform, she was no slouch. She sold 200 boxes of cookies the year before the digital platform was, was introduced. The year after it was introduced, she sold almost 1,700 boxes of cookies. Right? That's a multiplier effect on the impact that this one person could have. She didn't change, but she had new tools to be able to deliver on what was already there the appetite to make a big difference. Now, it's not just about technology, right? Innovation is also about empowering your people to do the kind of stuff that they already want to do and to take advantage of opportunities when they arise and at the time that it's most effective. So I'll give you another Girl Scouts example, this one from Canada. It's a nine-year-old girl that realized that legalizing marijuana meant people wanted more cookies. So she went out. She walked that line, and she sold all of her cookies in a day. Right? That's innovation in the moment. And the trick is making sure that these are not isolated pockets. These are things that you tap into and you take advantage of across your organization. Another good example, and one that I think is really important because it talks about engagement and data, is Amnesty International. So I'll give you a few examples of what they're doing. Amnesty is taking advantage of data analytics and machine learning to identify in a predictive way and in real time where unrest is likely to turn into violent incidents and be able to provide anticipatory support in advance of those events. They're able to use social media to understand and identify potential cases of domestic violence. And they're able to better understand the impact that their campaigns which they spend a lot of money and effort on, are having to make sure that they focus their campaigns on the people that are going to be most receptive to them and where they're going to have the biggest impact to change minds. So they're helping to understand, improve the value they can deliver, and engage people. 
And on the, on the topic of engaging people, they're not just doing it passively by understanding where to focus their efforts, they're also doing it actively, creating a platform by which people can be involved on a digital basis with investigating and supporting human rights research. So this, again, is an example of that multiplier effect. They're taking advantage of a much broader network of people that care and that want to be involved, involved being the, the critical piece there, right? People don't just want to support something financially. They don't, they don't want to just say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what you're doing. Go, go ahead and do it. They want experiences. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think there's some amount of this which is true, which is there's, there needs to be a certain degree of Instagram-ability to, to the engagement that people have in everything that they do in life. And if you want that to be engagement in the not-for-profit sector, that has to be there as well. The ability to have these high-touch, high-energy, high-engagement experiences available to people. Now, hopefully, by this point, you all at least directionally agree with me that innovation is worthwhile, useful, and can drive big impacts. Is that, is that fair? Does anyone fundamentally disagree with that? If so, leave. Uh, but I understand, because I work with non-for-profits all the time, helping them think about how to drive these kinds of impacts. I understand that the constraints are there, and the constraints are very real, that tell you in the back of your mind, this is all cool, but it's not going to work for me. So I want to help you understand how it can. What are some of the practical things that you can do and focus on that can help you bridge the gap from an aspiration for innovation to the realization of it? The first part, as I've talked about a lot, is focusing on social experiences. Thinking about the services that you provide and the work that you do and how you can adapt and augment some of those things to make them more socially available and more engaging. This is important because the appetite for that is not going away. It is getting bigger, right? People have their own social media accounts before the age of 13. They use those accounts every single day. If you aren't tapping into that, you are losing out on a huge resource and on access to a group of people that are increasingly going to be critical to being successful at doing what you want to do. Charity Water launched a campaign that was very successful in accomplishing this. The hashtag, 748 million, intended to help people understand the number of people without access to clean water in the world. It created 30,000 people engaged in their program in one day. And not only online, they also created offline channels of engagement for people to meet up, share ideas, and get more involved through social media and through Instagram. All right, the next thing you got to get right is culture. As I mentioned, it starts with leadership, and then it follows through to the culture of the organization. New Story is a nonprofit that was identified as one of the most innovative nonprofits uh, in, I believe, 2017. And when their CEO was interviewed, he said, there are three simple principles at the core of the culture that we've established, which helps us solve problems of poverty in ways that no other organization has really thought to do before. Right? Poverty hasn't, isn't a new concept, but some of the ways they're approaching it are. And those three things were, one, be true to your beliefs, which once again goes back to the concept of identity. How do we make sure that we are 
the kind of organization that wants to innovate and puts those beliefs first. Two, don't be afraid to fail. A lot of people use that terminology, you know, fail fast. But what does it actually mean? It's simple. It means structure your organization in such a way that you eliminate the systemic things that push people away from risk and from the risk of failure. It also means make sure that you have the systems in place to take advantage of failure, to learn from it, to capture those insights, and to bake them back into the next thing that you do and the next thing that you do. Another example I'll give you, and this one again is from the for-profit sector, but it's too good to not talk about, is an organization called WeWork. Who's familiar with WeWork? Has anyone heard of this organization? So they're a company that provides uh, very uh, innovative, collaborative, energetic spaces for people uh, from you know, startups all the way through to large multinational companies to take advantage of, to be able to work and think in a different way. Now, in Ado, to be able to provide that kind of a service, you have to be the kind of organization that has a culture where innovation is at the core of what you do. And they agree, which is why one of their co-founders is their chief culture officer. I think this is an amazing concept. In fact, I think it's so amazing that I put a chief experience officer role into my own leadership team at the University Consulting Group about a year ago. The role that this guy plays is in making sure that his people are being used to the full extent of their abilities, that their ideas are being brought right to the market, and that they have the comfort that they're allowed to explore and fail and try again. And that's important not only because they want to innovate, but because innovative environments are their business. And if they can't get this right, eventually those spaces are going to feel less and less exciting, less and less energizing, and ultimately are going to be less and less valuable for people to pay a premium to use. All right. Data and insight is one that holds a special place in my heart because especially in the non-for-profit sector, this is an enormous underutilized resource. The kind of data that nonprofit organizations have at their disposal is amazing. Vast bodies of information gathered over long time frames about people that most, most people don't even focus on. Information that no one else is capturing. And you're in a sector where the ability to share that information with each other and collaborate on the basis of what that data tells you is much higher than it is in the for-profit space. But most of this data goes unused. This is a Harvard Business Review study that said, while over 90% of organizations say they have some model in place to gather feedback on the services that they provide, only 13% of them actually use that data to change anything. What does that tell you? It tells you that we know that it's important but we don't know how impactful it can be if we actually use it. Let's talk about that impact. This is an organization called Direct Relief. They provide access to resources like uh, pharmaceuticals and equipment to clinics in developing countries that are trying to provide services to people that need those, those medical services in those areas. In response to an Ebola outbreak, Direct Relief was asked if they could figure out how to help mitigate the spread of the disease. Now, for those of you not familiar with the spread of Ebola, if I understand right, at least from my own research, it's really critical to understand how it's moving and where it's going 
so you can head it off at the pass and limit the negative impacts that it can have. Now, they had data. They had information about who was consuming what kinds of services and what kinds of materials and resources where. They were able to take that data, combine it with other information being gathered in the field. Remember that this is environments where you're not talking about a ton of high tech. You're talking about simple, basic information. And they were able to use that to visualize a model of how the disease was moving and make it a lot easier to counteract. Simple but powerful and based on data they already had. And they saved lives. And the last dimension that I think you need to talk about is partnerships. Partnerships are so important to innovation in the nonprofit sector because of that amplifier effect. You can only go so far taking advantage of the resources that you have through traditional methods. But if you can take those resources and find out ways, instead of going from 1x the effect to 1.2, if you can go from 1 to 10, 1 to 100, 1 to a million, now we're really talking. Now we're talking about the ability to innovate on a different scale. So all of these will be about that multiplier effect. So the first one is an organization like Datakind. Datakind provides data science services to charities and nonprofits so they can finally take advantage of that data that's been sloshing around all this time. They also provide channels by which nonprofits can collaborate and interact with each other to share information and to address and identify common problems, and then use that data science support that they provide on a pro bono basis to actually do something about it. As a shameless plug, this is a very similar model to the University Consulting Group, which I lead, in case that was unclear at this point, uh, providing pro bono strategic advisory services to nonprofit organizations, so you can start to think on a longer term basis about where you're going, who you want to be, and how you get there. Second model is crowdsourcing. So a lot of people have talked about crowdsourcing, and they've thought about it in a very narrow context. But this organization, Jefferson Education Exchange, is focused on one simple goal, understanding how educational technologies actually play a role in improving educational outcomes. And their primary mechanism of learning those insights and taking advantage of them is by providing simple incentives to get people that are actually using these educational technologies every day to share their information with Jefferson so they can then turn around and use it. So the result is, instead of them going out, using the technology themselves, or interviewing people to get a handful of data points, they get tens of thousands of data points that they can use to really understand what's going on, and to understand how these people that are actually using it every day, how they would fix the problem. So going from my ideas to our ideas. This one is a private uh, sorry, is a for-profit, non-profit uh, collaboration. So GSK set out to see how it could make an improved effect on uh, developing communities that needed specific medical treatments. And they partnered with Save the Children because separately, neither of them was really able to accomplish this. Save the Children understood the plight of these people. They understood what was needed and where it was needed, but they didn't have the resources to act on those needs. GSK had the means to create tailored medicines and products and services for those people, but they didn't know what to focus on or where to put their efforts. Together, they were able to take that data about what was really going on in the field and tailor specific medical products and services for those audiences, significantly improving 
the health outcomes of those people. Right? This wasn't about the traditional partnership of give me some money and I'll go and do something in the field and you get to say that you helped. This is recognizing that together they were able to accomplish something that neither of them could separately. And finally, you have collaborative philanthropy. As different from traditional philanthropy, which is I'm going to give you something to go and execute on, it says I'm going to give you something to use as an incubator to pull more philanthropy and more support. So I'm going to give you the capacity to amplify this current amount that I'm, I'm using. Right? So uh, how Rockefeller and MasterCard uh, approached this problem was they set up um, a, an incubator with an amount of seed funding that they used to pull in other seed funding and other philanthropic support, as well as the expertise that came with those donors to drive results in specific objectives uh, around the use of data in the nonprofit sector. So they multiplied the effect of that single philanthropic investment by using it to drive an acceleration of further investments and engagement of the people that could actually help solve the problem. So where do I start? How can all of you in the room take this, leave today, don't leave right away, there's some other good speakers coming up, but you know, at the end of the day, how can you take this and start to use it to say, we've got to be innovative at the core of who we are, and that's what we're going to do from now on. Well, I'll start by saying what you shouldn't do. A lot of organizations that hear this kind of a talk, they go out and they're like, we've got to get something fancy, and we've got to stick it onto the side of the business. That's not what innovation is. It is not an asset. It's not a tool. It's something that, not something that you stick onto the side of your organization. It has to be a change in who you are, and what you care about as, as an organization. On the flip side, innovation is also not something that has to be everything to everybody. You don't have to go out and do it all. If there's a thousand opportunities, you don't have to feel bad because you only did three of them. Right? Starting small is good. Starting small is important. So don't be the uber Swiss army knife. Right? Be, be three of these things and do them really well and use that as a platform to build. So what should you do? First, pause. Take a step back. Think about it as an organization. Engage your leadership and consider what kind of an organization you actually want to be and if you're willing to take the steps necessary to put innovation at the core of what you do. And then once you've made that decision, Take your first step. There's lots more steps to come, but as I mentioned, that first one that begins to build up momentum, that's how you snowball. Starting to show that it's more than just cool off to the side, that it's more than just compelling, that this can be the way that we do things from now on, and that that can be extremely effective. And the best part is that for a lot of you, you don't even need to take the first step. You already have. You know, you look at a lot of the efforts of the people at the front lines of your organizations. They care so much that they're innovating in spite of you. They're innovating anyway because they care too much to not do it. So a lot of you are already at step two or step three. All you need to do is make a decision that you want to be this kind of organization and embrace the innovation that's already there. 
embrace the organization that you already are. And in doing so, you can finally put innovation at the core. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Innovation, Change, and Leadership presentations from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series.